Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm reading here from John 2, 13 to 19. This is what is sometimes called the cleansing of the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now I didn't add here, but of course the explanation is there in John. And he is referring to the temple of his body, which he will raise up in three days. Meaning that Jesus is identifying himself with the temple. And so here at the beginning of John, Jesus disrupts the Passover. It's the Passover of the Jews. It is that sacrifice celebrating Exodus from Egypt when death passed them over on the eve of their escape from Egypt. This is one of the signs of John. You know, there's seven signs, and this is pictured as one of the signs. The key thing here, I think, is destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, referring to himself as the true temple. The incident here in the temple, it's really not about Herod's temple. You know, this is the second temple. Jesus is not really that concerned about getting rid of coin exchange. They needed coin exchange because they could not bring in the coins with Caesar's image stamped on them because there were no graven images allowed in the temple. It's really not about animals being sold. If you remember, even at Jesus' birth, his own parents came in and purchased a dove. And so it's not the trade itself that was wrong. But his words and actions have to be seen as a prophetic critique of the whole system, right? He's saying, destroy this temple. Well, it is destroyed when this book is written. When John is written, we think it's in the 90s AD. The temple is gone. It has already been destroyed. And so it is a critique of the whole Jewish system, but not simply a critique. It's a promise or a hope for Jews who now, in fact, are without the priestly order, without the sacrificial system, and without the temple that was the center of their religion. And the Jewish response indicates that they understand this is a sign. They don't really say, hey, what in the world are you doing? They say, by what sign, by what authority are you doing this? In other words, they understood there was some spiritual significance to it. 
They didn't take it as an attack, an assault on the temple. They're actually asking something on the order of what Moses did. What sign, what wonder will you perform to indicate that you have the authority that you're claiming here? They knew the prophecies concerning the end of sacrifice. They knew the limitation of the efficacy of animal sacrifice. And Jesus is indeed declaring the end of the sacrificial system as he is the true temple. And as will be said throughout John, he is the true Passover lamb. And so as one scholar has put it, Jesus' action in the temple represents an act of the rejection of the most important right of the Israelite cult and therefore a statement that there is a means of atonement other than the daily whole offering which is now null. Jesus is the means of atonement. And so the Gospel of John is written at the end of the first century. The Romans had already come in, they destroyed Jerusalem. They left no stone standing in the temple. And we can read John that not only is the story of temple replacement, but it's actually a depiction of how all of the rites and sacrifices and meaning of Israel, they're now continuing as a first order reality through Christ. The ingathering of a new Israel, you know, that's Jesus calling of the 12 apostles. He's going to talk about a new abiding place, a new dwelling. And that's the temple of Christ's body that we are abiding in. Here is true temple. Here is true sacrifice. Here is a new understanding of atonement. And this theme of fulfilling Israel's scriptures, it echoes, really, this is the story of John. You know, even in the prologue, he talks about that this one who is tabernacling with us, that is, Jesus' body is described in terms of that old tabernacle. That here is the true tabernacle. That it has commenced in his flesh. And God is among us. And here is his glory. True glory. You know, the tabernacle had a kind of glory. The temple had a kind of glory. Which, by the way, Herod's temple didn't have any of that. And the language of tabernacle and glory reverberates with the way in which God's presence is going. You know, this is really the Ark of the Covenant. Remember in the Holy of Holies with the tabernacle and the temple? Oh, here is the true Ark of the Covenant. And so rather than reading this opening scene as a cleansing of the temple, in the context of John, I think we have to read it as the beginning. Here's a new temple. Here is a new order of worship. And actually, you understand the temple was a microcosmos. It is representative of the entire cosmic order. And so in this light, we're understanding, oh, here is the recentering of the world. And this is the theme in John, that Jesus as temple will mark each key part of Jesus' identity. In chapter 4, Jesus has that conversation with the woman at the well. What are they talking about? And of course the Samaritans say, well, we have a temple here in Samaria. You Jews have a temple. And Jesus says, well, we're going to worship differently. We'll worship in spirit and truth. And then they begin to talk about water. 
that I will provide you the true water. And of course, the picture is from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 47, 1 to 2, the picture is that under the temple were springs of living water. And Jesus says, I am the living water. This is Ezekiel. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under the right side of the temple, the house from south of the altar. And then he brought me to the north gate, and led me around on the outside of the outer gate by way of that gate that faces east, and behold, water was trickling down from the side. This is the whole picture in Ezekiel 47. The temple is this place of the well springs of life, and Jesus says, here is the true water. Here is the living water. He's saying, I'm true temple. The temple in Jewish tradition, you know, in Genesis 2.8, it talks about the springs of water flowing out of Eden. The Jews pictured the temple as sitting on the capstone of those springs of life. They actually pictured the water, the floodwaters of Noah had been capped, and the capstone was there under the altar in the temple. You know, this foundation stone is in the Holy of Holies, supporting the Ark of the Covenant, that most holy thing. And the temple then is sitting on the wellspring of the earth at the center and source of creation. And Jesus says, here is true temple. I'm the true temple. I'm the living water. And he's going to do this throughout John that they have these various temple feasts that Jesus is going to say, I am the light. At the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, this is the feast remembering God, bringing them through the wilderness as a light, the shining light before them, a pillar of light, and providing them water in the desert. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, in 737, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then in 8.12, he talks about the light. Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. And the picture here is the temple is probably lit up at this time of year during this feast, commemorating God as that pillar of light. He who follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then there's the Feast of Dedication in 165 BC. You know, they reconsecrated the temple. Jesus says, I am the consecrated one. So in each instance, he's doing what he did at this, in John chapter 2, he's saying, I am the true temple. During the final discourse in chapter 14, Jesus speaks of his father's house. And it has many rooms. A household refers to a family. And Jesus is saying, my father's house has many members, many dwellings, many people. There is an ongoing extension of the household of God, God's family. Here is the blessing of Abraham being fulfilled. And so in the course of the gospel, the temple, oh, maybe they thought of it as a building. But the Jews knew that was just symbolic. They never thought of that as the final reality. But Jesus then is saying, here is the true temple. I am the true temple. And he's going to extend this to a new community, a temple community, 
of disciples, but ultimately to a new world order. That's what we're talking about. Everything is being changed up. Now, if we take Jesus at his word, you know, in chapter 2, really the temple construction of Jesus' body gets underway where? At the cross in the tomb of Christ in which the echoes of the temple reverberate. That's what's happening in this picture. John makes it obvious that the cross, he's using the Passover. There are three Passovers in John. We know there are three years in the life of ministry, Jesus' ministry, because it's marked by these three Passovers. And in each Passover, first one, the cleansing of the temple, and then the last one, we see Jesus being crucified, and John says, and it was the feast of the Passover. Oh, you think that's important? That here is the climax. At the moment the Passover lambs are being slain, here is the true Passover lamb. This is chapter 19. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the second hour. And that's when Pilate says, Behold, your king. He is speaking words that he himself doesn't understand. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Passover lamb. As John will say it, that cleanses the world of sin. That's actually John the Baptist. Says when he sees Jesus, behold the Passover lamb that will take away the sin of the world. I talked about that last week. And so the work of the temple is representative of a cosmic removal of death. It's a work complete. You know, that was the Passover lamb. Death has passed over and we have life. And maybe it's the empty tomb, the cross, the resurrection, which most clearly bears echoes of Jesus as true temple. You remember the story of the resurrection? That Mary goes out and she sees two angels sitting in the tomb, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus lay. That imagery should reverberate. It certainly did with Jews and many commentators have pointed out. It's a clear allusion to the Ark of the Covenant, which of course had the cherubim on the foot and at the head. The two angels were marking the seat, the mercy seat, or the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And actually, the, the many similarities between the tomb, you understand this, how odd this would be for a Jew, but the tomb was, of course, a place of uncleanness, death, sheol. That was the one place they thought God was not. And here, the most holy of holies, I think is being identified with that place that Jesus' body lay. The inner chamber of the temple was separated by a veil. Well, the burial chamber is separated with a rock, sealed with a rock. And actually the verb that they carry the Ark of the Covenant in and lay it down, and they carry Jesus' body in, the verb, they carry it in, they lay it down. It's used five times in John. I think John is clearly echoing that language. The cloth that covered the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we know that Jesus' body was bound with a, a, a burial cloth. And it was wrapped in myrrh, as was the Ark of the Covenant. Both the tomb and the Ark were adjacent to a garden. 
In the temple, it was all decorated like the Garden of Eden. And then the tomb is located in a garden. And the entry into the Holy of Holies, this is the difference. It was restricted. You know, only the high priest. And I think this is the significance of that Sunday morning, that resurrection morning. Peter and John just go in and look in. And Peter just walks right on in. I think he's actually entering in symbolically into the Holy of Holies. But Mary, interestingly, receives a warning that echoes the warning to the priests. You know, they were told, don't touch anything. Don't even look in the wrong way. And Jesus says to her, do not touch me, for I have not yet risen to my Father. And of course, the time of day is always the, is the same. They come to the tomb like the priests would come to the ark early in the morning. And of course, finally, the risen Lord directly correlates to the glory surrounding the ark of the covenant. In fact, it surpasses that glory. Here's the true glory. The glory of the Lord had been attached to the ark with the cherubic figures, the cherubim of glory. And it was here that Moses would go in to the Holy of Holies between the cherubim at the mercy seat. And it says, there I will meet you in Exodus. God's speaking to Moses. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you. Where does God speak to us? Oh, from out of the tomb, in the way that he spoke to Moses. And with the loss of the ark, we know in 1 Samuel that God fell silent. The glory departed. But now real cherubim have shown up. Real angels mark the spot where access to God is now realized. The presence of God has been identified with the one who dwells between the cherubim. But now the presence of the Lord, oh, these are real angelic messengers. And there's parallels between the Levites and Jesus' disciples, Jesus' high priestly ministry. Now this is the high priestly prayer in John 16 and 17. And he's actually describing his relationship to the disciples in the way the high priest described his relationship to the, the tribe of Levi. It's stressed several times in Numbers. They are mine, God speaking. And Jesus repeatedly uses that language. God's own which are now mine. He says in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me. This is the language of a high priest in regard to the Levites. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am that they may see my glory. Who? Oh, that's us. Just as God designates the tribe of Levi as Aaron's brothers, Jesus calls us all now his brothers and sisters. This is John 20, 17. And the other prohibition, they couldn't touch it. They couldn't look improperly. They would be struck dead. And I think that's part of the significance. But no longer is God concealed and unapproachable. Jesus says, come, touch the wounds in my body. Touch the place where the spear was. Come and eat with me. Look and see. Oh, the priest could have never done that. No longer is there any threat of death drawing near. 
but rather through the incarnate son's atoning death, there's an offer of life. And so I think there's the obvious implications that here God and his people meet. And here true revelation is given and divine access is opened up to God through Christ. The explicit linking, you know, the cross and the lamb, the lamb of God, the tomb and the ark of the covenant. I think there's a striking theological lesson. First of all, there's no negotiation with the powers of evil, with death or with the necessity of violence. Certainly, great violence is unleashed on Christ, but it's not something that he negotiates, but it's something that he overcomes. He absorbs it. He defeats it. The picture is the true high priest has applied his blood to the mercy seat. So that where death previously occupied the center of the world, life now appears so as to displace death. And the idea is not, oh, death or the devil, you know, the, the devil requires a ransom. No, Jesus simply defeats death. He is lifted up. He says, when I am lifted up in John 12, that the prince of this world will be cast out. And the lifting up certainly is a reference to the cross, but it's a reference to the resurrection, to the ascension. That is, Christ lifting up is this movement of life that does away with death. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, this is the means I will draw all men to myself, because here is life. And so I think we sometimes have a wrong understanding about the meaning of Jesus' work. There is no deep discord, no original violence. It just is the idea that he is the light that dispels the darkness. He is the life that overcomes death. He is in John the I Am. Remember, that's the name of God in Exodus. The unpronounceable tetragrammaton. And so that exposes all metaphysical presuppositions. I think we often think that death and that that's a kind of absolute and that even God has to deal with death. Oh, God just defeats it. Even one of the famous theologians of the past century, he talks about death and nothingness as if this is in competition with God. This is a very Calvinist, very reformed understanding that God must negotiate with the malignant order of death and sin as if it is in competition with the reality of God. I don't think most of us would do what John Calvin says. John Calvin and Karl Barth, they both assign evil to God. And there's a long tradition, even those who don't say that, who a picture that God must somehow stoop to the level of darkness and violence to overcome it. God doesn't deal in that way. He just defeats it. The tomb as ark and the cross as means of establishing this relationship, it connects Christ to the atoning sacrifice, but it bears the full meaning of the sacrifice. And what I mean by this, the Passover lamb takes away the sin of the world. We find the life of Christ in the place of death, and that's the answer. The love of Christ in the place of violence, that's the answer. 
Christ's life puts paid to the notion that violence and death are inevitable and that God must struggle against the powers. Oh, that God has to pay a penalty or work within the law or that he struggles with the laws of the universe. God doesn't struggle under the laws of the universe. He made the universe. This inevitable violence, this kind of absolutizing of death, I think it describes the human order and the human understanding that every institution, every means which cannot imagine a resource that transcends this world just pictures, oh, we're just subject to the violence and death of this world. But this is precisely why Christ is the singular atoning sacrifice. That is, he's the sole foundation of a new peaceable kingdom. And so we don't look to the shadows to understand the substance of the reality. We look to Christ who is the substance and through that means we understand the sacrifices. And so however we might construe atonement prior to Christ, we now understand that he is the atoning sacrifice. This is 1 John. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. And in John's depiction in, in the gospel and the epistles, love is definitive of God, but this is a love that comes to full expression and fruition in the work of Christ. Here's 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There is love that we find life in place of death. The love of God is the defeat of sin and death. It's the meaning of atonement. It's the meaning of the world. That's the significance of that temple. The lamb, and this is the picture in Exodus, but it's the picture in Revelation. The lamb is at the center of the throne, the place described as between the cherubim. Here's the place that Moses heard God speaking. Here's Revelation 5, 6, and I'm closing with this. The center of the world, he says, has become the throne room of heaven. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. All peoples and all of heaven are now centered on this reality. It says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is world changing. Here the world is brought into relation with its creator and redeemer through the true temple, through the true sacrifice of reconciliation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.